Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Dedu, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week, I'm releasing an audio version of the recent webinar on low-end micromobility in China that we did with Lavender Ao, who wrote the lauded rest of world piece on low-end micromobility in China. She's joined by Nat Bullard, head of content at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. It's a great discussion about how the sector of lightweight electric vehicles in China has emerged and where they might fit into the global transport future going forward. It was an incredibly illuminating discussion about a topic that receives far too little press in my mind. I am aware that the quality of the recording is not as optimal as we would have liked, and for that I apologize. However, I figured, on balance, it was better that we released this content than that we didn't. As you may also know, we now have a date for our next Micromobility America conference, which is now scheduled for the 23rd of September. It'll be at Pier 70 in San Francisco and have more than 50 top speakers from the industry, more than a thousand global participants, with hundreds of startups and brands represented. If you love this space and want to find your tribe here, head to micromobility.io and find out more details. And now, here's Lavender and Nat. Let's go. So what I thought we might do is, you know, this really comes off the back of Lavender's article for Rest of World, which was about the space in China, sort of lightweight electric vehicles. Horace and myself, Horace, did you co-host of the podcast, read this and were both incredibly excited because it's a space that we've followed for a long time. We thought it was really exciting to see it get more coverage. So we thought we'd invite Lavender on and then we wanted to bring Nat on to kind of provide a little bit of wider context about the global space and EVs and how this might feed into how we think about the sort of heavy micromobility category. So what I would love to do is have Lavender first and then Nat introduce themselves and then we'll have Lavender kind of talk to what she saw while she was writing this article and a little bit more about the background there and, and, and other things and then we'll kind of launch into a conversation about it. Actually, if I could have Nat, if you want to go first and then what I can do is I have Lavender go from the, introduce yourself and then work through the slides that we have. Sure. Hi folks, Nat Bullard here from Bloomberg NEF. You know, we're an, an analysis shop looking at energy, transportation, commodities, increasingly looking at things like the digitalization of industry and food and agriculture. Uh, I'm the chief content officer, so I sit across a number of these different things, but I happen to have a particular and very deep interest in mobility, having lived in places where I've done everything from use bicycle as primary to use feet, to use scooter, to use a car with a car seat, and to living across cities and visiting cities in Asia, where transportation was whatever found you. So I'm very excited to have this conversation to dig in quite a bit on what, what Lavender can surface for us from the, the trend in China and what it might mean elsewhere. So thanks for having me here, folks. And Lavender. I'm Lavender. I'm a journalist. I cover technology, culture, and society, presumably in China. I got to Beijing in 2015. And before I became a journalist, I was actually in policy analysis and covered kind of China's governance and kind of local central government relations. And it was from there that I actually kind of went in, I was a tech policy journalist at first and yeah, kind of looking at how regulators in China were kind of viewing technology and what kind of things they were doing. 
Excellent. And so do you want to take us through the story of how you got to write the article for Rest of World and what, and what you found? Yep, sure. So I actually came across these kind of tiny car micro EVs in 2019, and I was expecting to write a policy story. You know, we'd just seen the draft of a 15-year plan about EVs, and I thought this was going to be a story about regulation. And then I started talking to people in the space, and they told me the story is much bigger. It's about what happens when there is no regulation. And, you know, these cars are outselling regular EVs by a lot. And, you know, they don't really have any coverage. And, you know, the market that they serve is also often ignored. It's kind of the elderly in China. And, yeah, I kind of, I really, I felt that this story, it showed so many things about China. Firstly, you know, there is more than one China. There's more than one Beijing. You know, I, I you know, living in the center of Beijing, I'd occasionally see these vehicles. But once you got to further out to the outskirts of Beijing, they're really everywhere. And, you know, you could tell that regulators viewed them differently. You know, they didn't want to see them all the time in, you know, CBD, but they didn't mind if people were using these in kind of rural outskirts or, yeah, in these kind of rural urban peripheries. And, yeah, they were also, people were buying them just because they were so cheap. You know, in the store I talk about, they they're selling for $600. And I saw kind of secondhand ones selling for much less, you know, a thousand RMB. And, you know, people were buying them because of the price. And some of the people that I talked to, they would say, actually, we think regular EVs are a scam. Why are you paying 10 times the price for the same thing? It's an electric vehicle. Yeah. And they're like, I can't, you know, how can, yeah, I think their, their mentality was how can the government crack down on us when we don't even rely on subsidies but you know they're really promoting these regular evs yeah and so it's amazing yeah so so talk me through so, so, so as yeah. you say the folks who who are buying them are typically older the, but in terms of unit sales i mean the thing that blew me away was just how like how big of a category they are and yet they're not tracked so there's no sort of central organization or anything that's sort of keeping tabs on the sector can you give any sort of numbers that adoption and, and like where they're getting bought and used? Yeah, I think it's very hard to give concrete numbers because there aren't these kind of statistics, statistical surveys. And obviously there are kind of gray markets. So yeah, I think people in factories aren't necessarily going to be very forthcoming, but I will say they're very popular in Hebei and Shandong, which are kind of north, northeast China. And I think part of that adoption is because, you know, those provinces can get very cold. And in Beijing too, you know, it gets incredibly dusty. Like I myself, I drive a scooter in Beijing. Sometimes in the morning when I come out, it looks like it's been buried and excavated from the ground. It's so dusty. So, you know, you also see scooters in Beijing that everywhere. But I think the appeal of these cars is that you're really protected from the elements. If it rains, if it's dusty, if it's too hot, you know, you have that kind of casing around you. I think that's also why they appeal to the elderly. Absolutely. And in terms of regulations as well, so they currently sit outside, no driver's license required. Are there speed limits on them? I think it's the regulation on regular EVs that have also contributed to the popularity of these smaller ones, you know, because you don't need a license, you don't need a license plate. Yeah, you don't need to take driving lessons and they're incredibly kind of easy to operate. 
and kind of older people, you know, it used to be that if you were over 70, you couldn't drive in China. And so for many elderly people, this was their first car. Yeah, because I also know as well, there's a, there's a quota system for being able to get a car, any kind of car, in a lot of the, the larger Chinese cities. So I take it that these are outside of that categorization as well? Yeah, they are. And yeah, that quota system or yeah, that licensing system was a big reason for why you saw this massive uptake in regular EVs, you know, besides subsidies, that, that you could get a license plate easily was a huge reason for that. Cool. Well, look, we're going to come back to this because I really want to dig in further with some further questions here. But I wanted to also give an opportunity to have a download from that on what's the overall EV space doing globally? Because I think Matt, out of everybody that I've tracked on Twitter, kind of is the, the most interesting because he just, you know, it's a lot about, I think everybody has underestimated the growth in standard EVs. Now, have you just sort of explained, where are we at? Like, what's the, what's the perspective on this? And then from there, I want to go back to, okay, where's the intersection between the standard EV market and, and what we're seeing here in China? Sure. And, so there's, yeah. there's a whole bunch of ways to sort of carve into this one, but I'll use something that I wrote about earlier today, which is, Thinking, if we think back to the last time that oil was $100 a barrel, which was in 2014, there were about 300,000 electric passenger vehicles sold, and that it would include plug-in hybrids. Last year, there were 3.1 million sold in a much a fundamentally lower price environment for oil. And this year, it's probably likely to be about 4.4, or maybe even slightly more, 4.5 million that are going to be sold. So... There's something very important to think about that this is actually that this growth in sales has actually happened largely in spite of a low oil price environment rather than because of a high oil price environment. And this is for many of you who are relatively new to this, this it just is the, the reality. But I think it's paradigmatically very different for people old like me or for people who studied this stuff since the 1970s when it was always highly interacting with a world of alternatives, right? So if oil prices were going to rise, people then sought an alternative in another kind of powertrain. We saw that that happened. So people sought the other powertrain simply because, right? A lot of it is due to subsidy. Yes, a lot of it is due to regulatory nudges in the form of what you described earlier in China. A lot of it is because people start to prefer these vehicles, even at the price point. Another thing that's really important here is that the global market for passenger automobiles peaked four years ago, and the EV market is growing. So people don't often put these two things together, but it's not just that the EV market is growing. It's also that it is the only growth market in global automobility at the large scale. What I think is really fascinating is to see how this evolves in a way that is kind of like an evolutionary fork from what I just described, right? The world that I just described has almost nothing to do with the world that Lavender described except for the lithium-ion storage battery. And in some cases, not even that. It really only has to do with stored electrons in a motor. You know, the, the vehicles that I described fit into the existing kind of European-American highly developed rest of world modality for how we drive around. It's still a car. It's still kind of like from like on size. It has improvements that you notice from a performance perspective. It's increasingly economic. 
but it is, this sounds a bit cheesy, but it's in many ways a plug in to an existing network, whether or not there's going to be some friction about, you know, where you charge and how and sort of things like that. I happen to think that's a problem that gets solved over time. So what's so interesting about this is that the biggest competitor for the vehicles that Navarro describes in many places is, is non-consumption. Right, the thing they're competing with is the is the the granddad in Shandong who doesn't want to be out in the cold, right? And Avender pointed it out very wisely that the sort of population that is addressable, the addressable market for these people is not only huge, by far the biggest elderly population of the world, but growing, and also one intersecting with the economics of vehicles like this. And then the question is, how is that going to resonate out and where? Japan has a pretty big culture of tiny cars, K cars, they're called, which actually, for the most part, are not electric, and they're mostly not used in big cities. A lot of places in Southeast Asia have a culture of scooters and cities built around them. We don't have that here in the United States. We don't really have that in Europe to the same degree. So I'm fascinated to see how this is going to play. Like, what's the, you know, what's the equivalent version of this that lives in cities? Oliver, you might remember this, but a couple of years ago, Aston Martin did this branded version of the Toyota Yaris. Do you remember I, this? Oh, I, yes. And I <laughs> saw one when I was in, in the Netherlands and I lost my nut. It was, like, you know, it's a, yeah, yeah, totally. But I'm curious. But it was, I, but I, was I, only yeah. just because they needed the emissions tiger, right? right? And, and remember, a Yaris yeah. is a lot bigger than any of the vehicles that Lavender has documented, right? But is there a place in the future for this sort of high end of large micromobility in cities, that the build quality that people like? And can it also, or can that category also chivy out an advantage? Will they be allowed in the bicycle lanes in the United States? I kind of doubt that. But yeah. will there be some other kind of preferential way that they intersect with city space? The last thought for me, the big challenge here is that the intersection of like large micromobility and an increasingly bloated and gigantic average vehicle size in the United States would be, will be an interesting thing to navigate. I wonder if we have the same sort of interstitial space in which vehicles like this that Lavender described are actually going to be able to fit. All great questions. Thank you, Nat. I'm really curious as well, Lavender, and maybe this is, you know, if we can start off here. I went and spent a bunch of time in uh, Shanghai and Beijing in 2018, and I loved walking around the Hudongs to look at these vehicles because I was also at that stage, I think I was like five podcasts into making the podcast with Horace. And so we were talking about these very ideas of what happens when you start to get to combine all of these different, you know, cheap batteries and some motors and wheels and put them together into something that is an unregulated space. And I noticed that the older ones were really like banged together. And there's some photos that have come up of this of really like, that's clearly just some guy who's gone and put these things together versus what looks like far more sophisticated vehicles. And do you see, I mean, it's an unregulated space, but clearly the quality of the product is getting a lot better. Can you talk about what that improvement has been looking like and what are the improvements that you're starting to see? Yeah, sure. So speaking to a designer in this space, he says the falling cost of parts has definitely helped. And mm. also, he said that people do want cars that look a bit better, you know, at a low price point still. But, you know, he was very in tune with what car trends were and how to integrate the kind of car trend, like design trends that you'd see in regular sized cars into these micro EVs. And, you know, he showed me some of the cars that he designed and they're incredibly different. And yeah, he has some designs that he's very proud of and they do look pretty good. And he's, yeah, he's only getting more ambitious 
and I, in the article I talk about one car, he a prototype he showed me, which is, it looks like something out of Star Wars. So yeah, I do think that, yes, maybe the target market is not going to necessarily pay more for cars, but they still want to, you know, be in a car that looks good. Yeah. Completely. One of the things that I, I think is really interesting is that transition of going from where we are at the moment, which is it looks like largely captive consumption in the sense of the people who are buying these vehicles, as you've said, are regulatorily kind of locked out of the standard EV market. And if they could, their preference would be to go and buy an EV, maybe at a slightly higher price point. As you get closer and closer, kind of further and further up the value chain, you're probably going to start getting into the, hey, we're actually competing against these, you know, the GM manufactured four-seater car that's actually a regulated car and you need a driver's license to be able to operate. There's a jump there that feels like it's going to be made which is if we look at, for example, where, all, where is all the growth in mobility going to happen? And Horace and I spent a long time looking at, you know, it's, it's in Africa. We're going to have most of the large city growth in urban, develop, in urban context is going to happen. Like all of the US and Europe is kind of growing out. It might get a little bit, might get a little bit more dense, but all the big stuff of all the cities that are going to need these transport systems and vehicles in these transport systems are in Africa and India. And so it's going to be, I think, an interesting transition of going from these vehicles that are, you know, maybe interesting and good enough, but into other markets. And actually, I'd love to hear from both of you about any knowledge that you have of vehicles like this starting to be exported. So is this happening? Like, are these, are these vehicles going to Africa? Are they going to other low-cost markets where they can be deployed? Maybe Lavender first and then Nat. So I spoke to a entrepreneur from Ghana who was kind of exporting parts from China to create micro EVs, also kind of scooters. And yeah, he definitely said that they needed to be adapted to local conditions. Suspension needed to be changed. But he was very positive about, you know, he was using more as like to deliver things, not and also taxis. So but yeah, he was very positive about, you know, their use and yeah, he was quite ambitious about rolling them out. So I do think that, you know, in places where he was actually adapting them with solar power too. So yeah, I think <laughs> cool. there's so many, yeah, it was really amazing. And yeah, I think there's just so many options for entrepreneurs to explore. And mm. yeah, I think the price points that you can get if you order parts in China also makes them very attractive. And you know, if you've been to Shenzhen, you'll see it's just so easy to order parts and then get them to customize it for whatever you want and put your own brand on them and market it as a new car. So, yeah, I think from the people I spoke to, they did see, you know, potential for these micro EVs to go to other countries. They, they said that it was perhaps kind of harder to kind of sell the idea of these micro EVs to Americans or, yeah. Yeah. you know, people who kind of believe that Tesla is the model for EVs or they just don't want something that small. But actually, you know, they had a lot of interest from India or Pakistan or, you know, Ghana. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I do see a lot of potential for these micro EVs to go global. Yeah. And I mean, Nat, it kind of brings you right back to your point in the beginning, which is a lot of these are competing against non-consumption. Right. Yeah. Do you have, do you have any of insights so, there, Ida? What I'm very curious to see is how this intersects with the really large growing electric two and three wheeler market in places where the climate's more temperate. 
I think what like what Navender identified from Ghana sounds right to me is that this may be more like the ultralight commercial vehicle platform than it is personal transport. I mean, I'm trying to think what the you know of the, the the way that this would be advantaged in a tropical climate would be if it's air conditioned, right? But that's going to add an ex a lot of cost, right? That's the whole advantage of being open in the with the exception of rain, but being open in a, in a two or three wheel vehicle is that you're, you're ex, you know, you get breeze blowing past you, which is not what you want in Hubei in the winter, but you might want yes. it, you know, you might want it in Hanoi in the summer. So I'm curious to see actually what they're intersecting with, but the kind of ultralight commercial vehicle application sounds fascinating and ruggedized sounds right too, you know, built to purpose. But, but what, you know, what Navinor identified is we, anybody who has a product cycle vision on this, especially if they come from traditional automobility, needs to throw it away because it's probably not like that. Like the cycle time on this is months, I'm guessing, from design to build. And what I also don't imagine is the case is that the fundamental tooling commitment behind it isn't as big either. So, you know, like if you, if, if you decide to make a model at GM or at Toyota, you, you not only have you designed the car for five to seven years, you've also made billion dollars of capital commitment or more around the stuff to make that car. <laughs> you know, not just stuff to make cars, but things to make that car in particular where, you know, you've, you've got a lot of stamping, you've got a lot of metal forming. That's also part of the magic of the EV powertrain, that it's much simpler so yeah, I don't know. I haven't I haven't seen any evidence of these showing up yet in on this side of the world. In the United States, you know, the application wouldn't be personal. I just I have a hard time seeing it at least at the moment. It's most likely yeah. to be delivery. I will say we do have one place where everybody drives quite small electric four-wheel vehicles and that is in retirement communities. Right? So we do have that here. There's <laughs> yes. a, there's a place called The Villages in Florida wherein that's essentially required. Like, like that is how you get around. And within that literal walled garden of a place, within that domain, I, I think they're pretty popular, but they're also essentially mandated. You're not allowed to take your GMC Yukon in there and share the road uh, with somebody on the golf cart. Totally. And, and, and in some part, I think that's, you mentioned it before, and, and Levin, you kind of alluded to it, is around that intersection of like, we are seeing cities around the world starting to build a lot of bike lanes, especially post COVID and starting to say, we're going to, we want to encourage these sort of things. And at the moment, nobody's gone around and except maybe Oslo, which is getting rid of all the car parking and Paris is getting rid of all the car parking, actually saying we're going to completely ban standard cars and, and then say, well, what would be the space where we can still offer the opportunity for people to be able to get around in an individualized basis. They don't have to rely on public transport. Uh, right. um, this is where I can see these vehicles really coming into their own. And but how, it's a question yeah. of how do you get them into the market? And then how do you, because I think if you, especially with the four wheelers, the four wheelers are really like, you're going to start being regulated like a car if you try and bring it into any of the sort of more OECD countries. But to that point, look, the OECD is old too, right? Like, you know, most OECD countries have a significantly on balance older population than, than China. Not as big, obviously, but, you know, how does granddad take a kid to school? You know, it's mm. not going to be on a stromer. I mean, maybe, I mean, he could be a total badass, right? Like he could be on, <laughs> he, you know, he could be on a speed pedelec taking a kid to daycare or to the nursery, but maybe he, maybe not. Like, and so I think we may find their regulatory carve outs start to happen for, you know, people who want to enjoy micromobility and the electric aspect of it, and maybe the preferential treatment in terms of where you can move, but who are not able to drive a bicycle. Right or bicycle, mm. rather.
Lavender, there's a, there's a question that I have, which is, you know, of the companies that are building these vehicles, like, did you, did you have a chance to go and dig into that and understand a bit more about like how big they were? Did you have a chance to go and visit any of those manufacturing facilities? I was planning to visit some factories, but kind of COVID made that quite difficult. But I have right. spoken to people who have been to these factories and he kind of said, well, what I visited it has 500 people working for it. It's a big taxpayer. The local government likes it. And yeah, I think that's why you see this uneven enforcement of, you know, whether we should have these cars or not, because Mm. in certain places they think, you know, we're never going to get Tesla to set up a factory here. So why don't we have these small EVs instead? And, you know, local governments, they're very practical. They want businesses that are successful that pay tax. If you are successful, they will, you know, zone a piece of land for you. They'll give you preferential policies. You know, they'll think about tax breaks as well. So, yeah, I think there are factories producing these on scale and at scale. And I think there are also smaller outlets that perhaps they do scooters. Or if you wanted to put an order for a car, they would make it happen. Mm. I guess the reason I was trying to ask that question was to to understand whether or not... like the perception of them by local car makers and whether or not there's going to be it feels to me like in china they're kind of at the point where they're at an escape velocity like nobody's going to go out and like try and outright ban them and that no to your point that earlier about sort of like in places where they're already established i think that's where there's that opportunity for them to just kind of like well they'll just proliferate because and they'll have the the companies that are producing them locally and they'll have enough of a heft behind them and the and the people i mean you wrote actually Linda, one of the parts i loved the most in that article was talking about how nobody wants to go and fight the old revolutionary guys <laughs> the- <laughs> yeah. that was that was my favorite part too like they yeah. were in the, yeah they were in the cultural revolution they're not afraid of anything yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 and that and you know my source for that quote he'd actually spoken to you know an official in shanghai who said have you ever, you know, seen them in groups? They're terrified, <laughs> you know, you know, 50 kind of Chinese grandmas like yelling at you. Yeah, they don't really want to deal with that. It's basically like kind of trying to tell their mum off. And yeah. That's brilliant. So, I love yeah. it. Yeah. When I was thinking, if I think about this in the context of, you know, Oliver, like, like Australia, New Zealand, United States, Canada, Honestly, I would imagine we're more likely to have a mandated minimum weight for vehicles than we are to have a mandated maximum weight for vehicles. Like if you want to have something that intersects with traditional city traffic up to, I don't know, 50 kilometers an hour or, or 40 kilometers an hour, they're like, that's fine, but your vehicle has to weigh at least, <laughs> you know, it has to weigh at least 800 kilos or some, or some such thing. I, I find that that in, in our context is more is more likely, that's not obviously an ideal outcome in terms of resources and efficiency, but I feel like that's kind of the safety minima. Or, I mean, the, the, uh, the other challenge would be if they're integrating with regular traffic, do they have all of the same safety measures? Do they have side impact protection? Do they have airbags? You know, do, you, do you have collision avoidance? So do they have anti-lock braking systems? I mean, you start to add in all of these things and you're suddenly getting very close to the cost of, a really good used car, <laughs> like a really good Toyota Corolla or Camry. You know, I, I think that that's actually something we should we should be aware of as well. You know, this this seems to be an exercise in squaring the circle of alternatives, whether it's consumption or non-consumption or whatever it is. But I think that's something to be aware of in in, in our world. 
totally. Um, yeah, I really agree with that. And I think if we were to see an iteration of these cars, you know, I don't think they could not have insurance or not have all these safety features. Though yeah. the designer I did have to talk to, he said, you know, we are, they are more and more safe. You know, if you go on social media, you'll see a lot of complaints about these cars actually. And saying, you know, they're not safe. If I crash, you know, I'm not going to get a payout or if they, if they crash into me. And yeah, I think those are issues and those are reasons why regulators have sometimes kind of cracked down on them. Lavender, yeah, I think, think that is an unresolved issue. Did they become safer too en masse? Like the more of them they are, the, more, the harder it is to just bully one of them off the road. Like, did you, did you observe that as well? I don't think it was them getting bullied off the road. I think it was they were doing the bullying. You know, it was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think there, there are, if you, on kind of social media, you'll just see these videos of them kind of running through red lights, you know, doing these very dangerous turns. I personally haven't seen that myself, but yeah, there's a lot of videos and people complaining about them and saying they're terrible drivers. Mm. I love where this is going, by the way. And I agree with you, Nat and, and Linda, that, you know, if these were to be sold into more traditional markets that we might see where the, the cars would be sold, that it would need to be a vehicle that is higher end. And I, one of the things, and I'll just draw attention to is Arkimoto, which is a three-wheeled electric vehicle that's built out of Portland, Oregon. And the reason I think it's interesting is that it does the same thing that these vehicles do, which is it sort of like weaselly works its way through the regulations, which is it's a, it's large, it's about 550 kilograms, three-wheeled, but has crash protection-ish. It's enclosed over the top. But the reason it's interesting is that it drives like a car. It's insurable like a car. You drive it on a car license, and yet it's a really lightweight vehicle, and it's comparably cheaper. It's about $20,000 as a vehicle in the US. Um, and they're talking about getting it down to about 12000 US. And, you know, it has 100 performance as totally fine, you know, 150 miles of range or something. So enough for a commuter to be able to go. And I think that's what we're going to see is these people kind of going, looking for creative interpretations to the regulations of what's available to build these vehicles, which is possible with these very modular, like electric powertrains. Yeah, anyhow, I, it's just a reflection that I had as, as, as I was hearing you talk, Lavender, about that you can build a factory in these things and, and they can be small. Like you'd never hear of that in the traditional car manufacturing world. Like you wouldn't, these things have to be big. As you said, Matt, you're committing billions of dollars of capital to do a production run. If anybody had any commentary on that as a, you know, what that might look like as we go further and further up market? Because I do, I think that's where the most space in micromobility is, in my view, is the, how do we navigate, take these iterations and as you say, get them safer and get them more performant so that we can get them into other markets and have a kind of a global hit on our hands of a vehicle that really kind of changes the perspective, I think, of what people, of what micromobility is possible for. Look, in the United States, if you put a first-generation Mini Cooper or a Cinquecento on the road, it's practically micromobility, right? You know, if you, if, you, if you put the cars that were popular in, in good old Europeans, you know, in good old European streets in the 1950s and the 60s into our context, they're street legal, but absolutely tiny by today's standards. Like, you know, to me, the, what I would want to see, I want to see a completely a retrofitted original Mini Cooper with an electric powertrain. Like not the new mini, but like an actual, <laughs> an original one. And that would, like standards these days, that would qualify as micromobility. And it would, it would plug right in. But the question is, who, you know, where is the appetite? What's the total addressable market for that versus something that is legit more innovative in terms of what it's trying, like the Archimotor that you just put up. Like how, again, the other, the other tension here is how much tension between configuration is there going to be? 
in the future versus just making a tiny little four wheel car. Mm. I think that's going to be very interesting to watch. Mm. Any, any thoughts on that, Lambda? I see some small cars in Europe. I've spoken to some people in China who are also kind of working with yeah, mobility projects in Europe to do kind of micro EVs, sometimes it's scooters, sometimes tiny cars. And, you know, one of my thoughts, you know, he said to me, you know, Europe used to love mini cars. They just need to remember that. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, yeah you completely. You see them everywhere in France. And yeah, and he said Americans used to make fun of tiny, tiny <laughs> European cars. <laughs> of course, we, it was, it was it's a joke from movies, right? Little tiny European cars. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. 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 So I've got a couple of questions here. I'd love to, I'd love to put to you both. So price aside, this one's from Roman, uh, price aside, where do you see other drivers of future sales growth? Within China or globally? Sure. Let's do China and then do globally. Cause I am curious for both as, as to whether or not you think there's difference in there. Mm, so in China, I think the market is huge. I think the only thing putting some people off from buying them is actually this regulatory uncertainty. Though, yeah, I know people who buy them anyway and say, oh, we understand that local government kind of lets them, lets them on the roads. And yeah, I think there's always this kind of consumers like testing the limits of regulators and occasionally there's a crackdown mm. and then people come back and still buy these cars. And I do think they've kind of reached numbers where it's very difficult to totally ban them. And as for globally, well, I spoke about kind of the Ghanaian entrepreneur and you know I know people working on projects in Europe also also the US actually so yeah I think a lot of it will depend on regulation I think overseas mm. and how open regulators are to kind of making space for these small cars yeah absolutely Matt any thoughts yeah regu no regulations absolutely the rate determining step I mean not just not just like desire, but like, are they, are they going to be allowed? As Lavender pointed out, I, I'd kind of, I think that the applications elsewhere in Africa could be very interesting, but I would still return to more like the platform of like large micro or heavy micro mobility, but maybe used in different ways. What thing could they displace as they work their way into the transport landscape? Or not just displace, but what could they, what unmet need is there for that? And you know, if the electric motorbike is meeting the one person option in tropical climate, then that's a big market already. And, and in growing though, and also drawing from the same supply chains and the, the same innovativeness that the, the micro vehicles are. But, you know, what's the, what's the tiny pickup market? You know, what's the, what's the something else? What's the Jitney equivalent, right? Something mm. that takes six people rather than one. So I'm, I'm curious to see how that goes. But by the time you're carrying six people, you may no longer be all that micro. But definitely, totally. I feel, I feel totally. like the, the, the platform approach to me is what, what, what fascinates me. What people... You know, what would you build? What would you build on that? If you if you know, okay, I have I have a powertrain, right? I have four wheels and a way of, of powering them and a way of directing them. What might I build on that, knowing that that's available, knowing that that's customizable? And I yeah. think that 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 to me is what's going to be really interesting. Is if somebody looks at not where am I going to put this car, but what would I do? What would I do with this way of moving? Right? Like, yeah. what am, what am I going to put in that on that? Who goes with it? What's the model for that? I think that that's going to be very interesting. Matt, I just have one follow-up question to that, which is, so what we're seeing around the world is like governments banning ICE sales from yes. 2035, from 2030. Because that was, to me, that to me strikes me as 
especially if we have vehicles that are coming up from the bottom and get performance yeah. enough to be able to go and function in some of these environments. And, you know, yeah, you're going to have standard cars, but actually, like, if you had the option to buy an Akimoto for six grand equivalent, mm -hmm. you know, and then you have an electric vehicle, that's cool. They're all going to be available. But I actually feel like the regulations coming down the pipe, especially around climate change and or carbon taxes, et cetera, are really going to put a lot of pressure and then say to people, kind of to your point, Lavender, like, people are going to push the boundary a little bit on like, well, you're telling me I have to be trying to drop my emissions in my transport and I can't afford an EV or the transition to an EV is hard. I want to buy these vehicles. Let me buy these vehicles. Um, I think that's actually going to be a key driver. I think that's going to be a strong driver. There'll be some element of that. I, but I think the concern is the quality of a newly built vehicle right now, an internal combustion engine vehicle or most EVs is so high that what we're more likely to find is, you know, is a plenty of people who are like, well, I still need a big car, so I'm still driving. <laughs> you know, I'm still driving Toyota Camry, but it has 300,000 miles on it and it's 18 years old. You know, yeah. like remember that's banning, it, it, there's a, a quite big difference obviously between banning sales and banning them from the road. So I think, I think short of a sort of, you know, societal cash for clunkers thing, which by the way, would not be necessarily impossible, right? Like it's definitely sure. good industrial policy if you say, get rid of your old thing, but you have to buy a country made electric to replace it. And that's, and we'll help you help you find that that's that's good industrial policy to an extent so i i wonder about that like i definitely a lot at the margin i think could could creep in but i don't i'm not certain yet if it's 2030 what somebody's going to say if they you know by that point they should be able to we should have well past the moment of upfront price parity for electric yeah, to a conventional vehicle so that will be passed then it's a question of like i don't have the money for an expensive vehicle or you know a vehicle at this price point and that i think is that that might be more compelling for you know the archimoto case and things like it yeah. or i just you know i i have a finely grained understanding of my driving pattern is another part of it Right, you yeah. know, I have a child. The driving pattern is pretty well known, but it also has inflexibilities in it at the moment that fades over time. And 15 years ago or 10 years ago, I didn't have to worry about that either. Totally, and I do think that there might be changes in consumption in the sense of, especially if there was autonomy added to some of these vehicles and they can come mm -hmm. to you or you have access to them by sharing platforms, et cetera, et cetera. Lemdo, I know your background is policy. So any, any further thoughts there around just some of those policy interventions that we, we were discussing, especially around climate or anything? Is there anything, insights that you might have read that around there? Well, you may have seen kind of China's pledge to go carbon neutral. So, and also they have goals for kind of, number of electric vehicles on the road too and they kind of want to phase out internal combustion engines too so yeah i think china is going to continue pushing evs they're also talking about kind of hydrogen fuel cells so, mm. yeah initially the, the then minister for science and technology called wang gang and he actually did his phd in germany and then he worked at audi and he thought okay well we're quite behind so if China is going to take a huge market share in, you know, cars, maybe we should go electric. And he was really pushing that at the highest levels of government and made it into a very high level priority. You know, he's often called the father of electric vehicles. And mm. I think all the signs are that China will continue pushing EVs. And yeah, I think these small EVs, these very low speed EVs are definitely going to be part of China's future. Yeah, 
There's a question here from Roman, which is if the car is still somehow seen as a status thing, which drove trying to become the largest automotive market in the world, how do these small ones gain traction? And I think he's talking about, obviously, there's sort of, is there a possibility that they end up going into actually competing one-on-one with EVs as well from a status perspective? I think we're seeing some EV companies trying to compete with them. And yes, the car is a status thing to many people in China, but for many others, it's just something they use to get around. You know, they're very practical. Mm. You know, I just want to pick up my kids from school. I want to pick up my grandkids. I want to get my groceries. Like, those are the questions that they want answered. And, you know, how do they gain traction? Well, I think they already have a lot of traction. You know, they yeah. sell many times more than regular EVs. It is hard to find concrete statistics, but estimates are kind of three times more. So we're talking about over three million sold per year. And... So the question that I then have is, that was the most interesting, one of the more interesting parts of that article as well for me was the, that GM had done that partnership and gone super low end, but that most people didn't think that that was going to succeed. Mm. Yeah, well, Can I guess. you talk through that program again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's this car, the Hongguan Mini, and it's like GM and another car brand. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's very cheap. It's about $4,000. And yeah. you do need a license plate and to have taken driving lessons to drive it. And yeah, I think it is a still the lack of regulation for these other small cars that is one of the, it's, it's probably their biggest selling point. Because, you know, if you don't, if you only earn like just over $1,000 per month, even buying a, you know, $600 car is quite a big purchase and if you have to spend another $700 on driving lessons and then on a license plate then kind of double the price of a car so Mm. I can Mm. definitely see why people will still choose these cars over the Hongguan Mini. Yeah interesting. Horace when he saw so there was another article I think it was from China China Daily or something like that that had come through about that vehicle and Horace sent it to the team and said the people who are buying it are, are, are predominantly women. It's very utilitary, are like utility driven. It's very cheap. And it's literally like he, he said, he used the term, it's considered to be beneath contempt. Like people are just like, <laughs> oh, this car, you know, like it wasn't, it was, and he's like, this is everything that I know, I know works about disruptive innovation. Like you look at this stuff, that's where all the interesting stuff's happening, not in the, the EV space or sorry, the Tesla, you know, super, super high end of the market. So yeah, it's, it's such a fascinating space to watch. You know, obviously it feels to me like those, there's so, heaps of experimentation on that kind of low end and then it gets absorbed. And the thing that was most interesting for me about that was that GM were involved because typically, like if you look at the US strategy, it's like super going really high up market. They're not, they're getting out of all those cheaper cars and, and yet they went right down as far back kind of down into the low end of the market as they could with their EV strategy in China. So yeah, I'd, lo- I'd love to hear your thoughts on that for, for the sort of typical automakers and how they're looking and thinking about this space. Well, I think in China, as in other countries, there's going to be a lot of different market segments and it's up to car makers to choose who they want to sell to. With the Hongwa Mini, I think they realize, well, there is this massive market of people who want a cheap, but also legit and not kind of gray area and yeah I mean there's a lot of car brands in China I think there's a lot of space for cars at different price segments 
And yeah. I think that will be the same elsewhere too. You know, so we, just, I think it's kind of, we tend to think, oh, it has to be really high tech. It has to be, it has to go fast. It has to be, it has to look really good. It has to be cool. And mm. yeah, I think the thing I love most about this story is, you know, it came down to very simple things. It was about, you know, people buying this car or these kinds of cars because of the price. It was very practical. It was just a very simple decision for them. Uh, you, know, you know, so what, we, what we've seen where, the, where there's been an investment strategy, it's usually been on the more speculative end and on the very, the, either the truly micro end or the real autonomy end, right? So autonomy is sustaining innovation if you make large cars, right? Um, in theory, it, it, could, it could also inspire a whole bunch of lightweight, low-speed autonomous vehicles, actually where, wherein you may have fewer edge cases. Well, you're always going to have like a bajillion edge cases with autonomy, but you know what I mean? You may have, you may have fewer things literally to be running into, or at least you're, you're at a speed at which the implications are much less extreme. Or you, you invest in, in bicycle sharing or some other kind of very, very lightweight electric platform. I think it would take quite a vision strategically to, for a major to make the move that Jim was able to do mm. in China. But part of it in China is knowing that the market was already there. And in the U.S., to our earlier discussion about the standard to which things will have to be built in terms of the regulatory standard, not even the build quality, but just the regulatory standard of including you know, airbags, anti-lock braking, proper restraints and supports, all these sorts of things. At that point, it may make it very challenging to build what we are describing in the Chinese context at all. Like it may, it may not go that way if you are a large manufacturer looking at it. However, if you are coming in a properly disruptive innovation path, you start at an edge, you work your way in, and you add to become a product that is competitive rather than starting off right away as a displacement. I mean, the, the biggest challenge for all the strategic planners of, at this level, whether you move liquid hydrocarbons or, or you make the vehicles that use them is, and you know, I return to it all the time. I know you hear me say it before, Oliver, but like you're competing with the non-consumption. Like what quantum, what quantum of a vehicle is not appearing, of a traditional vehicle and of the traditional hydrocarbons and fuel it, are not appearing because of all these other things. And it's extremely difficult to measure things that aren't happening. And really, yeah. it's, an, it's an exercise of imagination and theory more than anything as to where it might go. And I think the theory is probably much easier to evolve into an industrial strategy and a practice in pretty much every market I can think of except, may, except really the United States writ large. There are probably application markets where that is. But, you know, our cities aren't that big. We do not have a city as big as Beijing. Right, Beijing. Yeah, if I recall, is twice it's a half the physical footprint of Belgium, but twice the population. So oh, we 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 don't have cities like that. And I'm yeah. trying to imagine, you know, essentially ring fencing, uh, lower speed, lightweight electric vehicles to Manhattan, and then what? Like, like <laughs> and then at, at which at what point are you then are you making the swap and going to the garage where there's a hundred thousand? GMC Yukons waiting for you. I like. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to imagine that that this this sort of occupies a a, a landscape sufficient for all of that in a mass, like like at a scale in which you find in China. Mm, mm. So we've got about three minutes left, and I wanna I wanna end on the the question actually for you, Lavender, which is 
just around the consumption. So at the moment, people are buying these vehicles, but are there financing markets that are existing or are people using them as, because uh, I saw actually in some of these photos that were coming up, people hopping out of the back of them as if they were being used as taxis. So is there other ways that these vehicles are actually being consumed by people for mobility, simply beyond simply uh, like buying and then using them? Yeah, so it, there's a kind of informal ride-hailing market for use for these mini EVs as well. Mm. So usually for kind of last mile journeys. I don't know if you've ever taken the Beijing subway, but sometimes you get out and you still have to walk about yeah. 15, 20 minutes. You're a subway stop away from the subway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I think that's where, you know, you'll see these cars waiting outside subway stations for, you know, mm. people who get off work late, you know, 9 p.m., 10 p.m. You don't want to make that walk. And yeah, they're there for you. And mm. also, you know, outside the clubs of Beijing too. Yeah, I think people use them themselves, but then they think, oh, why not make some extra pocket money by driving people around my district? You know, they're not going far. So. Mm. Fantastic. Excellent. Well, look, we're coming right up on time, but I just want to say thank you to both of you so, so much. I mean, this is a, this is such a fascinating conversation and Lavender, I mean, hats off to you for having written that article. And, and I really hope that you get a lot of recognition for it because it's, it's a phenomenon that I think a lot of people have been interested in and know a little bit about, but I think you really kind of captured the zeitgeist in many ways um, with what you wrote there. And I'm looking forward to more reporting on that space. And Nat, thank you always, as always, for joining and, and, and offering your insights there. It's, it's, it's wonderful to hear. Yeah, guys, massively insightful. Thank you both for being here. And thank you for writing that article. As, as, as Oliver said, I dropped a link in the chat to everyone else. And uh, it was really just, again, I think, uh, I think this is a topic that sorely needs more exposition and it's a market that's so invisible. And so it's just amazing to kind of get a little more light shed on it. Um, thanks everyone for being here at this late hour or this early hour, depending on where you are in the world. Thanks for our panelists for being here. Oliver mentioned Arkimoto a couple times. Uh, we're going to have our next webinar with them in the first week of April. We send around details to the members about that pretty soon. And thanks everybody. This has been great. Uh, talk more soon. Bye Lavender, bye Ned, and bye Oliver. Talk to you guys later. Thank you all. Bye. Thank Thanks, guys. Thank Bye you. now. Bye-bye.